0: Um, I don't know if you know, I have a real privilege to be able to work with a lot of churches across the country and, and be in a lot of fun settings. Maybe you don't have a context for what happened here last weekend. But let me just make sure that you're aware of this. What happened here last weekend was incredible. It was unusual. It's, uh, yeah, absolutely. God is doing something in this church which is powerful, and it's a great picture of the fact that the Holy Spirit is moving, that God wants to do great things through this church. Uh, But your commitment to support this church financially was really off the charts in just so many ways. So I'm excited about what God is doing here, and it makes today so very, very important. It makes this series important because as we talk about spiritual warfare, let me tell you something. As excited as you were about last week, Satan is that angry about last week. And it makes all the more sense that we're talking about spiritual warfare because it is a very real thing that's pressing in as we will talk about this morning. So before we jump into the text, let me just pray and ask the Lord to really fill our hearts with his word. Father, we do give you glory and thanks and praise for last week. We know that it was not the work of any man. It was only the work of the Holy Spirit. And Father, I sense, I know, just seeing what you are doing in this church is an incredible thing. And Father, we know that there is one who is not happy with last week and one who, who fights against us. So Father, we pray that as we open up your word, we are praying that the Holy Spirit would surround this place. We are praying that the power of Jesus would drive out the forces of evil and darkness. And that the one that so often we fear in such goofy ways that ghost in the darkness, Father, that we would see that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. So be glorified this day through your word. May we hear only from you for the praise of Jesus. We ask it in his name, amen. Let me read a passage to you. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 11. It says this, Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will restore you and make you strong firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. It's a common little phrase there that maybe you've heard. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I'm very aware that I just lost some of you because you're saying, wait a second, when you say devil, do you mean like, a literal devil, or do you mean just the concept of evil? It's incredible, about one in four people actually believe that there's a devil. The thing that makes me much more concerned is 50% of people that say that they follow Jesus and go to a church that preaches the Bible, half of them say, I really don't believe that there is a real, true devil. I think it's a concept of evil. I think we say Satan and we say devil, and it's just the, you know, we, we mean evil, but there's really not a devil out there that causes me great concern. Some think, talk about the devil, is crazy. You should just ignore it. Some are fascinated with it. And those oftentimes are the two extremes, and I think that Satan loves those two extremes. Completely ignore him and say, the thought of that is just nuts, or have a fascination with it, and you're just, in one sense, consumed with it. Understand this for me. I believe that there is a true, absolute devil named Satan. And I believe that because I believe in Jesus. It's just that simple. You see, if if Satan is just a myth, then the lifelong struggle, the agony of Jesus, he was just shadow boxing. Because from the very, very beginning, there has been a conflict that's Talked about all throughout the scriptures. There's a conflict in scriptures of good versus evil. There's that conflict. In the garden it says, I will raise up a warrior and he will crush you. David fights. Why? To secure God's promises for his people. Jesus is baptized and then it says he immediately goes to war against Satan. There are demons who say, Jesus, why have you come here to destroy us? Divine war has its consummation at the cross. Jesus battles against sin and Satan. John says Satan is out there. He's the ancient serpent who has come here to destroy, to attack, deceive. And as we just read from Peter, he's like a roaring lion seeking those who he may devour. You see, if Satan succeeds, then there's no salvation, there's no hope. A lot of people, I think, have questions about Satan and some real doubts because they say, you know, if I could see some spiritual conflict... If I could see some miracles, if I could see more things happening, I'd be much more apt to really believe that there are things out there. Because I read these stories in the Bible about these miracles, and I hear these stories about amazing things. Why don't I see those things right here? Why don't we see miracles today right here in Lee's Summit? You know, if I could see somebody raised from the dead, uh, if I could see, uh, you know, someone get healed right here, I might be more apt to believe it. It's interesting, I've had a real privilege of seeing some incredible things in my life. I've had the amazing privilege to see some real spiritual warfare. Maybe once in the USA, several times in Haiti and Africa and Asia. Why is that? If you read the scriptures, there are four periods in scripture where there is intense spiritual warfare, and as a result, there are lots of miracles. Moses, the, you know, you, and, then, and then you have the time about the prophets, and you have Elisha, and you have Elisha, and all of those amazing things. The life of Jesus, and then the early church. Those are four times of intense opposition. Those are four times where there is incredible conflict. And so you have Moses and you have the stuff with Pharaoh and intense conflict and the prophets. You have these, you know, guys from Baal and all of these other things. And then Jesus and you have the scribes and you have the yeah, yeah all the Pharisees, teachers of the law, that intense conflict. And then you have Paul and you have those and those who intensely want to push down the church. I believe that in times of conflict like that. You see more and more miracles. The place where I see miracles around the world are places where. Truly, Christianity is really confronting culture. There is an open conflict. The church is standing up and saying, we're not going to be like the world. We're going to be different from the world, which leads to this conflict, which oftentimes leads to seeing things which we would describe as being incredible. Why don't we see more miracles in the USA? Because largely in the USA, the Christian church is in bed with culture in the USA there's very little difference between the church and culture in the USA. No wonder we don't see more things here. There's very little difference. But as we stand up, as we stand up for truth and understand there's going to be some conflict as a result, I think you will see more and more things. That's why I'm grateful for this church. I know that you're not compromising. I know that you're standing for truth. Continue to do that. But friends, understand that is spiritual warfare. I wanna just look at three basic things here about Satan today. And understand this, as we talk about Satan, ultimately, we're going to point to Jesus because this isn't, hey, let's talk more and more about Satan and then leave, because you'd leave and go, that was a real bummer of a Sunday, I should've stayed home. But let's make sure that we're clear on some things about Satan. I just wanna look and just say, you know what, first of all, Satan is very, very limited. Let's just look at some core limitations of Satan then some core lies of satan and then some core tactics of satan so first of all what are the limitations of satan first of all why does satan even fight against us it's easy because he hates god and he hates the created and the very one who actually created us see see satan is a destroyer he cannot build god is in control of satan Satan is on a short leash. Satan could do nothing to thwart the purposes of God. So let's just be clear. Let's play a little, you know, grade school game here, okay? Let's play the opposite game. So I'll say a word, you say the opposite. Are you ready? In, out. Some of you didn't speak up because you're afraid. Is this a trick? And are we going to, is, okay. So once again, in, up, over, light. Okay. Wrong. Light has no opposite. There's no opposite to the word light. None. Darkness is an absence of light. They're not opposite. Because you know what? If you have any light, it always overwhelms the darkness. Right now in my hand, you know what I see? Darkness. Watch this. The darkness did not overwhelm the light. They're not opposite. Darkness is an absence of light. What is the opposite of good? Don't answer that. It's not bad. Good has no opposite. Bad is the absence of good. There are certain things in this world that have no opposite. Here's the key. The opposite of God is not Satan. God has no opposite. There's nothing as evil and as bad as God is good. And I think that sometimes we have this thought in our mind of, well, you know, God and Satan, they're equal powers and they're equal in this battle. And so it's this conflict that we have no idea who's going to win. No, Satan and God are not opposite. Satan is so much weaker, he has core limitations, which does not allow him to battle in that way. We have to understand that. Satan is powerful, but he is not all powerful. God is all powerful. Satan is crafty. He knows a lot, but he is not all-knowing. God is all-knowing. When you pray, Satan does not know your thoughts. When you pray, God does know your thoughts. Oftentimes it's, well, you know, Satan knows everything about me. No, he doesn't. Satan is very, very limited. Satan is wicked, and he has a lot of demons, I believe, lots of minions that do his work, but Satan is not omnipresent. He cannot be all places at all times. That's why I always want to kind of correct people. I mean, look, I understand when you say, man, Satan's tempting me. And I get that. You're saying, you know, I believe that, you know, the thought of Satan or the the power of Satan or, you know, what his minions. But when you say, no, man, Satan himself is tempting me, I'm gonna say, dude, you must be pretty special. Because he can only personally tempt one person at one time. I mean, Satan is not omnipresent. So you're saying, of all the people in the world, you think you're probably the most strategic person that Satan really has to come after you. That's pretty arrogant. There's, We give him so much more power than he actually has. He's limited. But above all, understand this. Satan is a liar. He disintegrates relationships. He leads us into sin. He deceives our mind. He accuses us, leads us to despair, discourages us, ties our life into knots. But this one thing he does, the central thing he does is, the most powerful thing that he does is, Satan tells us lies. And the thing that's so sad is, so often we believe them. The word for Satan is Diablo. Accuser, slander, the one who lies, the one who attacks, and he wants to lie to us in so many ways. And there's a lot of lies that he tells. But let, let let me just look at the three top lies of Satan. Let me tell you something. I see these played out every week as I meet with folks and counsel with them. The number one lie of Satan is this: Don't be honest with anybody. Because if they really knew you, they wouldn't like you. So don't let anybody in. You see, it's a little bit comforting, a little bit comforting, to be not known but loved. But it feels very, you know, at the same time, it feels fake and very superficial. To be fully known but not loved, that's our greatest fear in life our greatest hope in life is I want to be fully known and fully loved. That's our dream. I want you to know everything about me and still love me. But my fear is if you knew everything. You know, that's why I talk to men all the time and they say, oh my gosh, if she only knew. I mean, I get that. I understand that. Because we all lead broken lives. We all lead broken lives. But that is the biggest life, Satan. Don't Be honest because if you're honest people will reject you friends I have found in my life that as you go to friends as you find some brothers in Christ or some sisters in Christ and go to them and you're open and honest they do not reject you it's like man thanks for being so real with me I've got a lot of the same things in life you know in my life let me share with you I'm telling you this is very very personal to me this week Friday afternoon I was in a prison in Colorado with one of my dear friends who is now in jail. And it was heartbreaking to speak with him. And uh, we decided that uh, one thing that we learned from the day is orange is not his color. Uh, He was wearing orange though on Friday. And the one thing that we talked about was how he had believed one of the greatest lies of Satan and some things that he's been struggling with for months, but he didn't tell anybody. Why? Because there was such fear, if you knew these things, you would reject me. And I just wept with this guy, Chuck. And you know that's not true. He goes, I know it's not true, but I believe that lie from Satan. Don't believe that. Find some people that you can be completely real with. You see, that's what we long for in marriage, is to have a spouse that fully knows us and fully loves us. You see, even in marriage, there's tremendous fear of complete disclosure because it's like, oh man, if he or she knew everything, if they knew, oh, my thought life and things I fantasize about, and oh, it would be over. Friends, we're all broken. We all desperately need Jesus. But we desperately need to not believe that lie from Satan that says don't tell anybody. Number two is this. Hey, if you've sinned in your life, God is mad at you, and he is pushing you away from him. I can't believe how many people I talk with that start with that basic premise, okay? Here's my starting premise. God is really mad at me. Now, you might want to write me and email me and push back against me. That's fine. Please don't, because I have enough emails now. But let me just make a basic statement. And I hope this is one of the most freeing things some of you have ever heard in your entire life. God is not mad at you. That's not to say that God can't be disappointed. That's not to say that God can't be hurt because of our sin. God is not mad at you. I was talking with a pastor on the phone and This guy from North Carolina called and he had a lot going on in his life and a lot of brokenness. And so we talked for hours on the phone and he starts off and he tells me just about his family, about his situation. And he tells me about this this daughter of his who has just walked away from the faith and and she's gone down south around Atlanta and she's doing some, I'm uh, making some very poor, poor decisions. And he told me how there was just been this gap where he has not known where she is and how he's gone there multiple times. And he's been, been to Atlanta and just looked for her because he wants to just embrace her, just express his love to her. And, and he just said, you know, in the midst of all of this stuff that she's doing, I just want to just love her. And so then we go on and we talk a little bit more about the rest of his family, then we talk about his church and some issues in the church, and then, then after about an hour, we talk about his life and, and his situation, and he says, you know, I'm just doing some really stupid things. I know that I'm doing some things which are so sinful, and I know that everything I do pushes God further and further away. I think that God hates me right now. And I said, just to be clear here, you're the father of the year, and as a father, God sucks. He said, what? I said, I, I just want to be clear in this conversation. You're a great dad and God's terrible, right? He goes, I don't even know what you're talking about. I said, well, dude, dude, an hour ago you told me that all of the things that your daughter does draws you to her. And you said you even, in one sense, love her more. And you're pursuing her and you're seeking her. And you told me you've been to Atlanta multiple times looking for her. And yet, then you tell me an hour later that when you do those same types of things, it pushes God away. What makes you the type of father that goes to your child? And what makes your sin so special that it pushes God away? There's about a minute where he's quiet on the phone. And on the phone, a minute is a long time. And then I can hear some tears. And then he said, I have never thought about that in my entire life. I said, do you realize the love that God has for you? Do you realize the fact that God is pursuing you, that God loves you that much, that he wants to be there, that he he wants to be a part of your life in every way? The third biggest lie I think that we believe is this. Hey, God's holding out on you. God has so much for you and he's holding out on you. You see, that's a lie from the very beginning. That's a lie from the Garden of Eden. That's a lie because you have Adam and Eve there and God says, you know what? You can do absolutely everything. You can have anything here. Everything goes except that tree right over there. You know what, stay away from that tree. That's the one thing that's forbidden. And then Satan comes and he tempts them. How does he tempt them? He says, you know what? God's holding out on you. There's some good things over there and if God really loved you, you'd have those things. Why is God being this way? God is selfish. God has got all these things for himself. God is holding out on you. And I have found so many people that still believe that. They still believe that, hey, God's holding out on me. I'm trying to give God everything and he's not giving everything back to me. If you think God is holding out on you, I have a pretty good idea why you believe that. Let me say it in this way It's Christmas time and there's two small children, a little boy and a little girl, and They're asking for some Christmas presents, and the main presents they want are these. The little boy is obsessed with marbles, and he wants a bunch of marbles for Christmas. And this little girl, there's these really small dolls, and she's obsessed with these dolls, and she wants a bunch of these dolls for Christmas. So, you know, they have this phenomenal Christmas. He gets a bunch of marbles. She gets a bunch of dolls, and for days over Christmas break, they're playing with their toys, and they're very, very content. But after about a week they come to that point where they've played with their toys so much that they decide, hey, you know what? One day, let's trade. I tell you what, you let me play with your marbles, and you can play with my dolls, and for one day, we'll trade. So they have this agreement. Okay, for one day, we're going to trade Christmas gifts. The the little boy gives his sister all of his marbles. The sister, she gives the boy some of the dolls, but not all of the dolls. She lies. She takes them and hides them back. But she lies and says, here's all of my dolls. So the boy plays with what he thinks are all all of these dolls. It's not all of them, it's just some. And the girl plays with all of these marbles. That night, the boy sleeps soundly all night. The girl can't sleep. She stays up tossing and turning all night long. Why? Because she feels so guilty? And because she feels so much shame? No. She stays up all night long thinking, I wonder if he gave me all of the marbles. You think God is holding back on you? I know why. Because you haven't given God everything. And when you see, when you hold out on God, then you're going to very naturally think that he's holding out on you. Don't believe that lie from Satan. God has so much more, but he's just not going to give it to you because he's a mean person. Don't believe that lie. What are the primary tactics of Satan? Let me just hit two. And again, there are so, so, so many here. I believe that they are isolation and bondage are two of the main things. Isolation. You were created for community. You were not created to be isolated. You were created to be a part of God's family. You were not created to try to go at this alone. And when you separate yourself and you go off on your own, you are more prone, you are more in a place where you can be attacked by Satan than you would ever possibly believe. So so yesterday I was in Colorado. And I I love Colorado, and one thing I love about it there, I love the trees in Colorado. I don't know what your tree, you know, it's like, boy, if I had to choose one tree I really love, you know, so some people would say, well, gosh, you know what, it's a redwood because the trunk, I mean, like 100 feet around the trunk, and they can grow hundreds of feet high, you know, gosh, the redwood is the strongest tree, and you know, my favorite tree by far is the aspen, and I just saw some aspens yesterday. I love I love the way that they look. I love the way that they grow. They're just, the, you know, those leaves as they just shake in the wind a little bit. It's just, it's a beautiful, and the bark is just absolutely gorgeous. I love the aspen. Here's the interesting thing about the aspen tree. If you live in Colorado and you think, you know what, it'd be really cool to have an aspen tree in my yard. I want to plant an aspen tree in my yard, like in Denver. You know what? Almost always the aspen tree will not survive. Why? Because aspen trees are never meant to grow alone. They're meant to grow in aspen groves. Now, if by some chance, if you have a tree that amazingly takes root and it lives, it'll turn into your worst nightmare. Because aspen trees grow off of seeds, but many, many, many more aspen trees grow off of the roots. You see, the roots will go out from the main tree and then suckers begin to come up off of the tree. And then they begin... To become trees and then those roots go out and then off of those roots more and more suckers and then all of a sudden you thought you were just going to have one tree in your yard and all of a sudden in your yard you have an aspen growth and oftentimes they come up underneath your driveway and your neighbor's driveway and your neighbor's foundation and oftentimes what you thought would be this beautiful tree is a absolute (laughs) it's it's a nightmare and all of a sudden you're paying thousands of dollars to dig everything up to get the aspens out because aspens aren't meant to be alone So that one tree, that one mother tree takes root and all of a sudden you have an aspen grove all around it. That's why if you have a fire and the aspen trees burn, they come back so quickly because it is almost impossible to actually wipe out the root system because it is so intertwined. You see the aspens, while it might look to be thousands of trees, it's actually only one real tree and everything else is a tree off of this root of that one mother tree. The largest thing that's alive in the world is an aspen grove that's I mean, it's just massive in Utah. It's just absolutely incredible. But the aspen trees are meant to grow in community. They're meant to be together, not ever alone. So when one tree feels faint, in one sense they all do. They're there together. Friends, God has not created you to be a redwood as much as that would sound to be really cool, God has created you to be an aspen tree. He has not created you to live in isolation. He has created you to be a part of a body of a family. That's why it's so important to be connected in small groups and so important to make sure that you're actively involved in fellowship. Because if one thing happens, when you get pulled away, just like my friend Chuck this past week in Colorado, more and more isolation, and then, you know, push there by more and more fear, fear from satan so all of a sudden he's isolated and he's not being honest and not really involved in you know all of these things and then it all comes crashing down don't be isolated that's one of satan's main tactics if i can isolate you i can destroy you and then bondage i believe that satan loves to keep us in bondage because we fail to believe the truth of the gospel of jesus christ And bondage is the thing that we need to understand that Jesus Christ died upon a cross to set us free from bondage. Freedom is a theme throughout scripture. One of the worst places in the world was the Buchenwald camp. It was a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. It was not as bad as Auschwitz, but it was right underneath it. And while there were no gas, chambers there it was a horrible place where tens of thousands died each month from starvation from beatings from experiments buchenwald was a terrible terrible place it's interesting it was liberated 70 years ago this week by Patton and his army and the nazis fled about an hour before they came into the camp but Patton and his men charged in those gates of Buchenwald and the camp was liberated and they really didn't know exactly what they would find. They had fears, but they didn't know what they would find. And so they came into the first barracks, opened up the doors, and they walked into this room to see hundreds of men and boys starving, crammed in just in layers, bunk after bunks, crammed into this barracks. And it was horrifying, it was shocking what they saw. And the Americans said to these Jews, the camp is liberated. You are free. You are free to go. Nobody moved. Nobody moved. They told them later, you came in to see us and you had on uniforms and we didn't speak English. So as far as we knew, you were just brand new oppressors. We had no sense of what was going on. But it dawned on the Americans what was happening. And so they called Rabbi Herschel Schachter, the first U.S. Jewish chaplain to go through the gates of this camp. This rabbi comes into the camp, he comes into the first barracks. And he looks and he sees what's going on. And he says, Shalom, Lakim yadim, zeret, frey. Peace to you, Jew. You are free. You are free. And it began to dawn on the Jews what was happening. And first it was a trickle, then it became a flood as they began to run from barracks to barracks, repeating that same phrase Peace to you, Jew. You are free. You see, they had been liberated. They had been liberated in an amazing act of bravery and valor by the U.S. troops, and yet they weren't even aware of it. Friends, that is such a spiritual picture of so many people who are absolutely living in bondage right now. Jesus Christ went to the cross, gave his life for you. He was your substitute. He was your redeemer. He was your sanctifier. He was your justifier. And yet so many of us remained in bondage. Satan keeps us in a place of bondage because of fear because of isolation all of these other things and the message of Lent and ultimately the message of Easter is you know what because of what Jesus Christ accomplished upon the cross you are free come out of the barracks come out of this isolation come out of the bondage in this captivity and realize Jesus has made you free that is the most liberating freeing message in the entire world Satan doesn't want you to hear it. Satan wants you to remain in bondage. Satan wants you to remain bound up and isolated and fearful and saying, I can't believe this because I can't tell anybody what's going on. I'll be rejected. No, you won't. You see, in Jesus Christ, you are fully known and you are fully loved. That's a truth that Satan has blinded so many eyes from for maybe your whole life, but that's the truth. In Jesus Christ, you are fully known and fully loved. And giving your life to Jesus is a response to what he has done for you. It's a response to understanding what Jesus Christ has accomplished for you, what he fought for on your behalf the greatest freedom you will ever know. My favorite book in the world is Pilgrim's Progress, which is, in one sense, a story about spiritual warfare, about Pilgrim, who is on this amazing journey towards ultimately heaven. And one of the last lines of the book is this. So Christian, not your pastor, that's the name of the character in the book, So, just to be clear here. Christian passed through Vanity Fair bloodied, but more pure in heart. He remembered amidst hard combat with the world, the flesh, and the devil, that celestial city which was his ultimate de- which was his ultimate destination, and the Lord Jesus Christ who beckoned him to life. Jesus beckons you to life today. Be free. Satan has shackled us. He has bound us. In Jesus Christ, we are free. Let's pray together.